0: Literature can make you feel, and it gets you thinking too. But how do you move from signs on a page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Karin Kokkonen, and together with my colleagues from the Literature, Cognition and Emotions Project, LCE for short, we will discuss these and other questions in the coming weeks. Today's guest is Stefka Eriksen, research professor at NIKU, the Norwegian Institute for Cultural Heritage Research. Welcome, Stefka. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Stefka, you work with medieval Scandinavian literature, sure. or Norse literature, as I've been told it's called. And I think this is something that most of our listeners will not have encountered before. So what do you think is the most fascinating thing Um, for you about this body of literature.
1: Right. As a start, I can say a few words about what kind of literature that is and when it is from. So as you said, uh, we call it Old Norse literature. So it's literature that was written in Norway and Iceland um, in the Middle Ages, which is after year 1000. Uh, So literacy or text culture, book culture came to Norway with the church So after Norway um, became Christian, uh, the church brought books with it. And gradually, after the first centuries, after the Christianization, more and more texts started to be written down. Everything from the religious texts, obviously the mass, every single church had to have their own mass. And then histories, historiographies, and also lots of translations and local genres. In Old Norse, we have both prose and poetry. We have the well-known edic poems and skaldic poetry. Um, We have um, recordings of pre-Christian myths um, and also practices, pre-Christian practices. So if I can get back to your question about what is the most fascinating thing, it's something, there's lots of things. So first is the content. Uh, So this is a corpus of literature that is, very varied. It um, includes many kinds of topics, many kinds of genres. Um, the different texts have uh, very different styles. As I said some of them are very local and very unique for the Nordic context. Well, we have also many examples of pan-European texts that were translated. That exists. That were possibly originally in Greek or Latin, and they exist in any vernacular from Europe, including Old Norse. Um, So from that perspective, what's also fascinating about Old Norse literature, that it's it's not peripheral, even though Mm. Norway and Iceland are kind of furthest up north, at the edge of civilization, we say even today, geographically, the culture, even in the Middle Ages, was not peripheral. It was very closely connected with uh, European
0: learned and courtly culture. So books, played a huge role in making that connection, I assume. That's
1: very true. Yeah. So, and also another thing that's very interesting um, is that even the local genres, so as, uh, as, uh, for example, the sagas of Icelanders, which are stories that tell about the settlement of Iceland, which happened at the end of the 800s. So even those stories that are very local, they tell of local history, uh, they're amazing stories about... You know, interesting characters, passion and revenge and uh, deaths and pain and it's um, emotions and thoughts that anybody can relate to. So in a way, that's why we also say they're part of world literature, because even though they're super specific
0: about Mm. a little period of
1: time up in the
0: north, they're very um, relatable. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say about the War of Troy that it's very specific in, in terms of location and, and setting, and yet it's something that um, a, a text that we still draw on exactly that we can still relate to. Mm. How do we get access to these texts? The sagas were written in manuscripts. yeah, I yeah, assume. yeah. And since it is exactly not printing, it's mm. not a reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, there were multiple different versions available. Um, so in that sense, of course, the sagas are quite different from our novels today, which where if you go to the bookshop, you expect that your novel is the same yeah. as okay. your neighbours. Yeah. What does this do for for studying these texts? The yeah. fact that uh, yeah, the, the culture of production is so very different.
1: Yeah, so for me personally, that's another reason why I find this culture fascinating. Because as you say, so this is manuscript culture. So before print, every single copy of every single story we have, it was handwritten. So somebody sat and copied uh, their text because somebody commissioned it or because they thought it was interesting and yeah, for you various have thought reasons. it was
0: really interesting if you spent that amount of time uh, copying it.
1: Exactly, exactly. That's a very good point. It was a very resourceful, demanded lots mm. of resources to, to write. Um, so that's something maybe we can come back to how, what it tells us that we have those manuscripts from that time. But uh, a main point with manuscript culture is the default setting, in a way, when you copy is to change the text so that it fits your own cultural horizon. So the default was to change. And as you said, every copy varied. That's why you have the main the main characteristic of manuscript culture is variance. And there's lots of um, elements in the text that can vary, everything from linguistics and like dialect. To structure, like a story, could have uh, the sequence and the events can be different. Some sagas can include more poetry or less poetry. The levels of detail can vary. Like some sag- some versions can tell us the basic story, while other versions can elaborate on certain parts. Sometimes you even have different content. You would have a different ending of a saga. Wow. So, but that depends on what genre is it. Mm. Um, and also another thing that varies is the very materiality of the books, because you can have a, one of the same texts written in a big illustrated folio manuscript, which is kind of a bigger than uh, A4, our formats. And, and you can have the same text in a tiny little pocket format uh, kind of a manuscript, and uh, the materiality would also influence how the text was experienced. So there's lots of things that could vary, and... Um, This culture, this manuscript culture, continued in Iceland all the way up to the 1800s. They would still continue copying by hand. And uh, if I'm to say something about the history of the manuscripts, just very shortly, they started to be collected in the 1500s, 1600s, and many of the old Norse manuscripts from Norway and Iceland then ended up in Copenhagen and Stockholm and Uppsala, the big university libraries, because Norway didn't have their own
0: university. So it was the people who founded the universities that commissioned someone to go to Iceland and fetch those manuscripts. Exactly,
1: exactly. And they started being interested um, in the history of Iceland and started collecting them. And basically we have stories about uh, how those people worked and uh, traveled around Iceland, for example, Mm -hmm. and found old books and um, fetched them and shipped them to the to the center of the state then to Copenhagen and um, yeah it's a very interesting story in itself how the manuscripts were collected and um, some of the manuscripts are also returned back to Iceland some are some are returned back to Norway but most most there are many uh, still in Denmark. Mm. Mm. Uh, yes, so how do we study these texts? You asked me. Um, so, philologists have worked with those manuscripts from very many different perspectives. And the two main groups of scholars, if I can say so, are the traditional philologists. They're interested in who wrote the text the first time, who is the author, what is the best version, what is the mm-hmm. oldest version. Those traditional questions that are very fascinating, they're important. Uh, But then uh, since the 80s, about the 80s, we have the so-called new philology or material philology. And we, I say we, because I've uh, studied and grown up academically in this uh, tradition, um, we're more interested in every single version of the story is interesting in itself. So it doesn't have to be the oldest. It doesn't have to be the longest. Every single representation is just as interesting. And um, the fact that it was copied, like we talked, the fact that somebody took the time and the resources to copy it says something about the people who did it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it's different questions, yeah. basically. And and of course, that new philological approach, as you describe it, that basically explodes the number of possible questions um, that you can have for exactly. a manuscript exactly so you combine this new material philology with cognitive approaches that's right yeah. um, how, how do cognitive approaches help you to to focus um, from a potentially endless number of questions for these manuscripts
1: yeah yeah so um yeah i'm very inspired by the cognitive perspective and uh, in my work f- for me what the cognitive perspective gives me is that uh, yeah? From contemporary cognitive studies, we know we know how our brains, how our minds work. We know um, all the terminology we are embedded and embodied and extending. We are social human beings. We are endlessly creative. Um, we know how this happens based on uh, modern. Well, we think uh,
0: we have an idea.
1: We we yeah we we're working with finding out, but we mm. can study it empirically, mm-hmm. uh, so we can learn a lot more. We can know a lot more about how the brain works and Mm -hmm. functions. So I use what we know from cognitive studies as a premise in a way when I study old Norse culture. So um, um, because we know that our brains, our cognitive capacity is basically the same today as in the middle ages. So we say that um, uh, I basically study how we have used our capacities in different ways. Yeah so when we know what we know from cognitive studies I combine it with our old Norse very specific very unique culture because we know also that from cognitive studies that that culture expressions mm. are uh, local they're because our, we are always influenced by our surroundings our cultural surroundings so culture expressions are both um there because of the culture they're um, embedded. created exactly they're created in but also The tools, the the cognitive tools we work with, they're the same. Uh, So combining these two perspectives gives even more questions (laughs) about (laughs) what we can uh, see in those texts. And it basically allows us to look at them from a different perspective. Mm. Mm
0: -hmm. Can you give an example?
1: Yeah, I can give many examples. (laughs) One example is um, from one of the Icelandic family sagas, from Njáls saga, there we have, a, you can say, a very classic story. We have um, uh, Niao's sons who killed their foster brother. So mm. that's a very, one of those dramatic. tragic, dram, yeah, dramatic, tragic stories. So how can you, of course, the main question in, in all North studies has been why do they do this? And it's like in Greek tragedy. Why does, how can something like this happen? And from cultural point of view, You can explain it with, well, the foster brother, he was uh, the chieftain. So from a pre-Christian point of view, he was the responsible one. So Mm -hmm. he had to be killed because something else had happened. He has to uh, be punished. He's the responsible one. He gets killed. From Christian perspective, this foster brother is, um, the killing can symbolize the sacrifice of Jesus. So it can be explained in this way. But from cognitive perspective, Then we are allowed to get in touch with um, something very um, humanly common uh, about strong feelings like uh, jealousy and like a feeling of being left out from the family, feeling of rejection. Uh, So then the cognitive perspective gives us a completely different um, starting point for discussing why something happens in the saga. Another example, if I may give one more, sure. is um, again from the Icelandic family sagas because they're so unique in their style. But I want to read a little excerpt from Egil's saga. Um, so Egil saga is one of the best known of the sagas. And Egil is this uh, um, character who is very conflicting characteristics. He's an amazing poet, very creative, uh, but he's also a, a very violent warrior. So, at some point in the story, uh, he's at the court of the English king, and his brother gets killed. Uh, so, just by saying something like this, we know that somebody, people would be sad. But then the question is, how does the saga, this this genre of saga, address or describe something like this? The saga doesn't tell us directly he was sad or he was um, mourning. It says... And now I will read. Um, Egil had very distinctive features with a wide forehead, bushy brows and a nose that was not long but extremely broad. His upper jaw was broad and long and his chin and jawbones were exceptionally wide. With his thick neck and stout shoulders, he stood out from other men. When he was angry, his face grew harsh and fierce. He was well-built and taller than other men, with thick wolf-gray hair, and although he had gone bald at an early age. When he was sitting in this particular scene, he wrinkled one eyebrow right down onto his cheek and raised the other up to the roots of his hair. Egil had dark eyes and a swarty. He refused to drink even when served, but just raised and lowered his eyebrows in turn. So this is, I think, a very um, typical example of embodied cognition, uh, because the saga doesn't tell us anything about his inner thoughts or feelings. The saga describes how he looks, and we see this big man who sits there with his eyebrows, and this is the only tiny little way of expressing his emotion yeah Yeah.
0: so it it allows you to to look at this text which I mean on the face of it if you compare it with a sort of typical 19th century realist novel where you would get half a page of in the turmoil there are just these two eyebrows going up and down yeah and yet I guess one does get a sense of just how um, excruciating uh, an experience it must be
1: yeah yeah and it's an extremely powerful way to uh, describe the the feelings of a person, because even though we we as readers get very few cues about what this person is going through, our imagination goes wild, and we can imagine what he must be going through. so uh, for again, from a cognitive perspective, the triggers we get in the text are very powerful, and they They really direct invite us to mentalize, to think about what what to lose a brother is and to Mm. imagine how to relate
0: to our own lives. Mm. And I mean, that is a a way I think in in which we relate to literature today and in quite general terms, don't we? Mm. That it's it's a way of understanding how other people experience things. Is that the way in which the Middle Ages would have thought about these sagas as Mm. well? That's
1: a very good question because um, in in scholarship, this is not how Old Norse literature has been discussed. Most often, scholars have discussed whether literature the literature was aimed to um, educate or to entertain. Uh, you have this dichotomy uh, between these two, which uh, in recent scholarship we know that yes, it did both. At least it both was there to entertain and also to Uh, to give a story, to give a history. So we have this uh, dichotomy or a scale between history and fiction. But recently, and in my own work, I really tried to study literature exactly like you say, the the way we study literature today. This was something that people wrote, found it relevant and interesting enough to write again and again and to read again and again. And it must have been relevant. It must have allowed them to both be entertained and learn something, but also to relate to their own experience. It must have allowed for mind-wandering and um, uh, self-identifying yourself and becoming more aware of what group you belong to, what history you had, who were the others, all those things. So um, I am really, in my work, I'm trying to to work with those concepts of mentalizing, interior of mind, and see what, how are they realized in old
0: Norse literature. Mm. Mm. And, and how, I guess, I mean, from what you describe, it seems to me that it's sort of literature on the ground, uh, isn't it? That yeah. What, what it might have been like to experience listening to a saga or, or reading it, yeah. um, w- which makes it, I guess, a lot more relatable. Yeah. In recent years, at least the things that I've come across, there's another way in which the Middle Ages have been sort of made more relatable to Mm -hmm. our present day perspective. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be this idea that in in the the Vikings or the Norsemen, or Mm -hmm. you you will tell me what is the Mm -hmm. correct um, terminology Mm -hmm. here they were actually part of a massively networked international culture. So Mm. they were not just sitting up somewhere in Norway or in Mm. Iceland, but they were trading and traveling down Mm. the Volga and Mm. and all the way to Mm. Constantinople and Mm. and Jerusalem. You spoke a little bit about the manuscripts that travel Mm. across Europe, but is that fact, uh, or what seems to be... Um, this this new view of the Middle Ages that everyone was connected with everyone mm. else, is that something you s- see in the texts themselves? Mm.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, the short answer is yes, definitely. Uh, the longer answer is just to put things straight. So we use the term the Vikings for uh, the Viking period is div- is in a way from eight hundred to year thousand, so it's before the Middle Ages. But many of the texts that were written in the Middle Ages, so um, as I said, 1100s, 1200s, they are about the Vikings. Mm. So they tell us all those stories, where they traveled and they what they did. And they, they um, traveled, they traded, they raided. We know all the um, horrible images of how violent the Vikings were. And they got far, they traveled far. But from this period, from the Viking period, we don't have any written sources from from the north. So there uh, we collaborate with our colleagues, the archaeologists, because they find um, objects that can tell us about this uh, far-reaching international trade and their travels. When it comes to the Middle
0: Ages, uh, as I said, book culture... So just to, are- to specify, what changes in the year 1000 is not a millennium bug, but... It's the fact that Christianity gets introduced, isn't it? That's correct. That's correct.
1: So Christianity becomes the formal religion uh, in Norway around the year 1000. And we know about um, Olav Haraldsson, who becomes the national saint, Saint Olof, who is uh, who dies in 1030 in 1030 at Stiklista. And he becomes the national saint in 1031. And after that... That's it, fast work. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then after that, Christianity is the formal religion in Norway, and yes. Yeah, so with the church and with the Christianization, we have introduction of book culture, and then, as I mentioned briefly in the beginning, the texts we have. There's lots of translations. So this is another way of witnessing, basically, how international uh, medieval culture was. Not only did it tell us about how far-reaching the Vikings uh, traveled and um, traded but also the texts themselves come from very many different places. So we have translations of Latin texts, of old French texts, of um, German texts. So there's lots of medieval bestsellers, if I can Mm. use this modern uh, term, that were translated to Old Norse, that were also read in Norway. So medieval Norwegians would read about King Arthur or something like that? That's a very good example. Um, We have uh, translations of the um, Christian de Troyes romances about King Arthur, but we have also translations of Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia Regum Britannia, which is the history of the British kings. And we have Lots of other historiographies that were translated uh, um, the history of the Roman people, the history of the Jew people, world history, and all those were translated to Old Norse. Other genres are the secular literature like Chrétien de Troyes, we have translations of Maria de France, who uh, was a nun working in England uh, in the 1100s and she wrote uh, short stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on oral Celtic tradition, like the stories about Arthur uh, also are. And uh, those were also translated to um, Old Norse. So that's an interesting example of female authorship already. Then.
0: Were there any female Old Norse uh, authors that we know of? Uh, not that
1: we know of so early. Um, later on, uh, you have uh, Birgitta in Sweden, uh, but that's later on. Mm. So in that period, that and that's this is also considered East Norse, and she wrote in. Oh, well, she wrote in Latin, mm-hmm. but um, it, it's a little bit different context than the West Norse that I'm talking about.
0: Mm. But Marie de France would be available.
1: Marie de France would be translated to Old Norse, and um, well, today we know it was Marie de France. Then they didn't really um, bother to write her name. Uh, So it's a very interesting detail about translations that very often actually the names of the original authors are omitted. So the the text really becomes kind of appropriated to the Norse culture and the names we have are the names of the commissioner of the translation, Mm -hmm. um, who was King Håkon Håkonsson. In the mid-1200s, he had a big kind of uh, Translation program uh, that he, he translated European texts to Old Norse. And he, we have the name of a translator, Brother
0: Robert, who translated both Tristram Saga. But they were aware that this is not an originally Norwegian text, or was that completely erased? You know, that's a very interesting debate. And
1: the fact is that the name of the original author was not there. Uh, so in the context of translation, they must have known because they yeah. said with two language versions. Um, and in the in the beginning of this translation program, so in the twelve hundreds, we have manuscripts that include just translations. Later on, with uh, younger copies, the translations would be mixed up with local romances, and without any mentioning that this is a translation or the name of original author. You wonder, <laughs> what would an Icelander reading Tristram saga in the 16th century, would they know that this is in translation or not? It's not, we,
0: we don't know. We'll have to guess. Yeah. Hmm. But what we apparently do know something about, you, you mentioned the histories they also translated, well, first of all, they, they wrote their own histories mm-hmm. uh, with, with the book cultures, you said, and also they translated his other historians like Geoffrey of Monmouth yeah. and others. And, of course, they had their own momentous sort of right. yeah, his, yeah. historical events yeah. um, that were recorded. So hmm. one of the things that you've written about is the so-called Little Ice Age.
1: Right, right, yeah. Yeah,
0: can you tell us something more about that and what the manuscripts uh, tell you?
1: Recently, as we know, um, there has been a generous increase in the so-called environmental humanities. So we are all concerned with our current uh, environmental situation. And uh, we as humanities scholars are going back to our sources and saying what can we learn about this and how can we learn from history and from culture from previous times. And one way of doing it is to go back to the Middle Ages because, uh, as you said, um, there was um, the so-called Little Ice Age. Um, it's a very general term. With not, it didn't happen overnight, and it didn't st- stop overnight. But around the last quarter of the twelve hundreds, um, temperatures started to drop. The weather was much more unstable. Crops started to decrease. There was famine. But yeah, it was a It was an environmental crisis, basically, and. Um, One approach to this Little Ice Age is to go to the sources and see what do they tell us about this period, what do the written sources tell about darkness and cold and disaster and uh, all all these phenomena? The archaeologists, of course, studied the Little Ice Age in a completely different way because they can dig and discover how the changed climate impacted both settlements and crops and everything. My approach to it is that um, during this little ice age, as I said, it started, say, 1275, just to put a date on Mm. it. It was not overnight. So 1275, then the 1300s was a time of crisis, Um, like things were not going well. Despite for that, uh, it's a very interesting fact that... um, of our preserved Old Norse manuscripts, about 60% of those manuscripts, they are from the 14th century. So they are from this period when we know there was a crisis. So I find this very fascinating. And going back to how resource demanding it was to write, I wonder why did they do this? (laughs) Why did they prioritize their resources, their time, to sit and write stories when the world was collapsing around them. And I don't have the answer to that, just to say, but this is, I find this very fascinating. And uh, my hypothesis is in a way that maybe literature and the histories they wrote, did not they didn't write it to describe down how they were dealing with the crisis, but it was a way to cope with the crisis. Mm -hmm. It was in a way a response to difficult times then one way of dealing with them is to remember who who we are and why are we there and what group do
0: we belong to.
1: And, and then, how do we
0: experience this? I do, mean, from what you said earlier on about Egil's saga, it's actually full of descriptions of experience as well. Exactly, exactly.
1: And just how, why, just just to, rem, we read texts that remind us why our existing existence is meaningful, basically. And, uh, of course, they also find... Uh, maybe direct parallels, or the, so in Iceland, they there are many of those sagas of Icelanders that were copied then, which tell us about why why people settled in Iceland in the first place. Mm. So that would be very meaningful, I think, if you're living in the middle of a crisis, you need to read why are we here? Why did our forefathers come here, and why did they settle? And yeah, so it's um, so I read the literature. My argument is that this was. Not directly a response, uh, but it was a way of coping with dealing with it on a more spiritual human
0: level than a practical level. That sounds quite existential. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I I like to think that, um, of course, they had to deal with their practical issues too, but... um, we humans have, uh, they have different levels
0: to operate on, and yeah, the there existential is level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, I mean that obviously resonates with our situation today. And the question is, when will people start writing manuscripts again? <laughs> or, I mean, more generally, it seems to me from talking to you about Old Norse manuscripts that there is actually a lot that sort of resonates across. The centuries, with the the way in which the the climate crisis, climate emergency, echoes across you. You also um, speak of page turners in yeah. manuscripts yeah. And, and that kind of thing. And yet, I guess it's quite clear that the Norse um, and of the Middle Ages live in a very different society and culture from from how we live today. Um, how do you see that historical distance? And, mm. and yeah, how do you navigate it?
1: Mm. Well, that's a, that's a main question in history. How can we at all study history? Can we at all know anything about the past when people lived in so different cultures and those cultures are gone? The people are dead. We have the texts they copied and the objects they made, the art they made maybe, but we cannot talk to them. Um, we can never know how how was it actually to live then. So some historians would say, no, we cannot um, do history in a way because of this difference, this distance. Uh, While others um, would claim that we humans are the same. We had the same need to relate and we were just social. Our species, it was the same then. And this is expressed very well by Sigrid Unset with her very famous uh, quote about... uh, Human thoughts and fate can change, but uh, human hearts, they stay the same. But the way I approach this dichotomy, in a way, is again, with the help of the cognitive perspective, it's not a dichotomy anymore. Because, um, as I said, we know that the, the cognitive premises for cultural production are exactly the same today as in the Middle Ages. So there we have the sameness. And in the same time, we know that cognitively also today we don't need the historical distance also today we misunderstand each other <laughs> we we it's not easy to communication is not easy so just knowing this and being aware of this difference allows us to actually reach out and try to understand knowingly that we maybe can misunderstand uh, so it's this doubleness of um, the cognitive perspective the cognitive premises being the same and it's just being aware of the cultural differences, we can slowly but surely maybe understand more, gain insight about the past.
0: And especially by reading some of the sagas, I guess. Especially by reading some of the sagas that are great entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much um, for this excellent conversation on the question of yeah, history, Vikings, Norsemen, manuscripts big feelings and and little ice ages. Thank you very much for joining us today, Stefka. Thank you for having me, Karin. And thanks to everyone listening to the LCE podcast.